I saw, a, I saw a caption when I was a, a preaching student at Patton, Patton University in Oakland, and I was taking a preaching class there uh, back in the late 90s, and, and uh, we had, there was this little preaching cartoon book, and there was a cartoon in there, and a man was standing behind a pulpit, and he said, uh, I was rifling through my Bible this week, and nothing jumped off the page and said, preach me, so I thought I would just share with you some of my thoughts. <laughs> well, rest assured... I'm not just sharing with you my thoughts this morning, but I'm bringing you a word from the living God. And I love the fact that God speaks to us. And I want each and every one of us to grow in our ability to hear the voice of God. I want us to become experts at hearing the voice of God. Because that is central to what it means to be a human being. When Satan came to Eve in the garden and said, Did God really say... That on the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. What he attacked was her humanity. Because part of what it means to be a human being is to have the capacity to hear the voice of God. Adam and Eve were formed in the image and likeness of God. And he breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. And their first level of awareness was not the physical world. It was the presence, power, and voice of the living God. And so when we are cut off from our ability to sense the presence of God, to hear the voice of God, and to experience the power of God, we are cut off from the fullness of our humanity. And so God wants to make us more human. And in order to do so, he's got to speak to us. And that's what he's going to do this morning. I want you to practice doing something with me. Repeat after me. Amen. Come a little bit louder, a little bit more bass in your voice. Amen. There you go. There you go. Say it with a smile. It actually, it, 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 it oops. So um, just, just practice that throughout my message. It'll, it'll get you out of here quicker. Amen. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. When you get there, practice that word that I gave you. Amen. <laughs> Actually, close your Bibles. You don't need to turn there. Because you're going to memorize these two verses today. One of my, one of my greatest um, convictions is that believers in Jesus Christ need to be memorizing Scripture. You need to take the Scriptures and put them in your heart and hide them there, and meditate on them day and night. And so uh, we're going to practice that discipline this morning. So repeat after me. See to it, brothers. See to it, brothers. See to it, brothers. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. Come on, I want you to preach it. I want you to say it like you're preaching it. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. See to it, brothers, that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart. Hallelujah. Look at your neighbor say, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. See to it, brothers, that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart. I'm not going to mention no names, but Brenda, please close your iPad. We're memorizing this. You're not, you're not reading it. <laughs> 
I don't want nobody read because listen, here's the key. If you're reading it out of your Bible or if you're reading it off the page, you're not memorizing it. You're just reading it. You don't start memorizing it until you start speaking it without looking at it. Okay. There's a key. A lot of people think my memory is so bad. No, that's not true. You just don't have the right technique. And I'm about to teach you how to peep the technique. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily. But encourage one another daily. But encourage one another daily. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. No. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. But encourage one another as long as it is called, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. But encourage one another daily. Peep it, peep it, peep it, peep it. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So, so peep it. Let me give you a simple technique for memorizing scripture. One phrase, say it eight times from memory. So for instance, if you start with, um, if you start with this text, see to it brothers that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So break that down. See to it brothers that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. See to it, brothers, that none of you... If you can say it eight times from memory, then go to the next phrase. That turns away from the living God. That turns away from the living God. That turns away... Say that eight times. And then put the two together until you can say the whole... Both of them together eight times. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. When you can say it eight times from memory, both phrases together, you got it. Go on to the next one. But encourage one another daily. But encourage one another daily. Say it eight times. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Eight times. And then add the next phrase to it. 
and then go back to the beginning. But you have to get to the point where you're saying them together from memory. And, you know, if you miss a word here and there, go back down. Every believer in Jesus Christ, I don't care how bad your memory is, I don't care how much weed you smoked back in the 70s. No, because that's an excuse that I hear people say, oh, I smoked so much weed, you don't know how much weed I smoked. That's why I can't memorize scripture. <laughs> you can memorize one verse a day. If you memorize one verse a day, you'll memorize 365 of them a year. And 365 verses is, it could be a whole book of the Bible, depending on the size. Actually, it could be, it could be several books of the Bible. It could be, it could, you could memorize three or four books of the Bible. Uh, letters of Paul, or, you know, shorter ones, uh, or even a longer one. Uh, so it's very, very powerful if you just practice that discipline of memorizing Scripture. And here's the key. Believers in Jesus Christ who actually don't go to the Word of God for themselves are simply being spoon-fed by the preacher once a week. And that's why we remain babies. Because at a certain point, my daughter, Alethea, she's three years old. I, my wife and I fed her for a substantial amount of time. But at a certain point, she had to reach and grab the spoon and put it to her own mouth. If she's 14 years old and still refusing to eat unless we put it in her mouth, something is wrong. Okay, and so a lot of believers in Jesus Christ might be in the church 15, 20 years and still never crack their Bible outside of the church. You know, they don't cra- they don't open the Bible till the preacher says, turn in your Bibles too." if you haven't opened your Bible since last week, when the preacher said, turn in your Bibles too," something is wrong. Mm-hmm. Practice that word I gave you. Because see, because see, if you don't say amen on that one, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> you should say amen louder on that one so you don't amen preacher mm-hmm. father i pray today that i would stop fooling around and get this word out so these people can go on about their day no father thank you so much for giving us the privilege of being in your house I thank you god that you're calling us to enter into your completed work to enter into your sabbath rest we love you In Jesus' name, amen. The author of Hebrews says, make sure, see to it, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. See to it. Make every effort, he says in the next chapter, in chapter 4, verse 11, make every effort to enter into his rest. When he says see to it, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that there's no excuse for the alternative. You ain't got no excuse. If your heart becomes sinful and unbelieving and turns away from the living God, there's nobody you can blame for it. You can't blame your mama. You can't blame your daddy. You can't blame your brothers and sisters. You can't blame your job, your boss, your financial situation. You can't blame your your trials at school, your, 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 your situations and troubles. You can't blame the person that dumped you or the person that left you in the cold. You can't blame anybody because you were commanded to see to it. Now, when you are commanded to see to it, it means come hell or hot water, you better see to it. You better make this happen. You better do whatever is in your power to see to it, to do everything necessary to make sure it is utterly and vitally important that you see to it that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And secondly, it's not just a personal individual responsibility. You are not just responsible for yourself, but there is a corporate responsibility that is inherent in this passage. He says, see to it, brothers, that none of you 
has a wicked, a sinful or unbelieving heart. That none of you, not just yourself, but you got, you better look at the person next to you and make sure they don't have a sinful and unbelieving heart. And when you see someone who is entering into that realm of unbelief, you better grab them by the hand and say, brother, we're going to have to pray together because there's no way I'm going to sit by and watch you having a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. I'm not going to let it happen. I'm not going to let you wallow in the place of defeat and despair and depression and discouragement when the word of the Lord is coming to you like fire and it has the power to set you free. Why is it that you're not believing what God says? You don't understand how wicked unbelief is. Make sure, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily. Always look for somebody to encourage every day, not just Sunday after church, brother, be encouraged, not just a a Facebook shout out, but encourage one another daily. Go on a seek and destroy mission for unbelief in the house. Look for brothers or sisters in the house that are struggling with something that are having a hard time believing. I love our LACC members Facebook page. We have this Facebook group for members of Living Hope Christian Center and when you go through Church 101 and, and your Barnabas Partners process and become a member, the first thing we do is put you in that group and welcome you to the members of the house. And there's so much encouragement that happens on that page. And just last week, somebody wrote on there, oh my God, I'm going through a terrible situation. And room, 30 comments popped up. Bam! 30 people going, brother, be encouraged. I'm praying for you right now. We're right here with you. Don't you dare talk like that anymore. Come on, shift out of that. God is with you. I'm talking about encouraging one another daily. Always being prepared to encourage somebody else. Why? Because we underestimate the power of unbelief. Let me tell you something. We tend to think that the only downfall of walking in unbelief is that we do not get to participate in the benefits that are procured by faith. So if healing for my body comes through faith, then if I'm walking in unbelief, I just stay sick, right? If financial breakthrough comes through faith, then if I'm walking in unbelief, I just stay broke, right? And if, come on, say amen. Amen. Right? Right? Yes. Talk to me. This is not a silent church. This is a conversation between you and me and the Lord. So, so we think that the only downfall, that the only downfall of walking in unbelief is that I just don't get to participate in the benefits. But the author of Hebrews says, if I walk with an unbelieving heart, I will turn away from the living God. An unbelieving heart is not just a heart that does not participate in the benefits that come through faith. It's a wicked heart that turns away from God. It is an unbelieving heart is a sinful heart and it turns away from God. Why? Because he says later in chapter 11, verse six, that without faith, it is impossible to please God. God is not pleased by anything but faith. God, and some of you, you know, some of us, we say things like I'm trying so hard, Lord. Let me tell you something. God is not pleased by your trying. God never looks down and says he's trying so hard. People in other religions all over the world are trying real hard, but man's trying is an abomination to God. You know what your trying gets? You know what your effort gets? The wages of sin is death. That is the only thing that you and I ever obtain through our effort is an eternity in burning hell. And when you get there, I guarantee you, you earned it. The wages of sin is death, meaning that when God goes to give you your paycheck and he pays you what you have earned and he calculates your wages, even after taking taxes out, 
He still owes you an eternity in hell. He says, here, here's death. I owe it to you. I have to give it. Say, no, Lord, keep those wages. No, 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 no. I'm a just God. And because I'm just and righteous and holy, I must pay you what I owe you. Now, let me tell you something. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. That is when God gives you eternal life, it's not because you earned it. It's because Jesus earned it. It's because Jesus signed over his paycheck to you. And he says, I want you to get my paycheck. I'm going to take yours. And he took your paycheck and my paycheck and went to the cross and died a death for you and me. And went down into hell and snatched the keys out of the hand of Satan. And led a host of captives to freedom in his chain, in his train. Come on, somebody. So God is not pleased by your trying. He's pleased by your believing. He's pleased by your faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So that when I am walking in unbelief in my heart, I'm not just walking in sickness when I could have got healed or living broke when I could have got paid. Can I get a witness? (laughs) Lord, increase our faith. When the rent is due and the light bill too and money is funny and change is strange, you start praying, Lord, increase my faith. But, but here's the, it's more than that. My heart begins to turn away from the living God. My heart begins to turn. Unbelief always causes your heart to turn from the living God. And so he says it's so important that we see to it that none of us are walking in unbelief. It's so important that we see to it that we are jealous to see to it that when we see somebody stepping into the realm of unbelief that we grab them and speak words of faith and we speak words of encouragement and say come back to the place of faith you can't afford to go to that place of unbelief and fear you can't afford to go there for a second before you know it you've done turned away from the living God and you don't even realize that you've turned away from the living God Now, he gives us a case study in verses 7 through 11, and he quotes a passage of Scripture from Psalm 95. Actually, he kind of paraphrases this passage of Scripture from Psalm 95, and he says it like this. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now, he's getting ready to tell us that those who went through this event that he calls here the rebellion, hardened their hearts, and their hearts turned over to unbelief, and then they turned away from the living God. And so he's using them as an example and saying, you see these people, they had unbelieving hearts, their hearts hardened, and so they went into what was called the rebellion. That is, their hearts turned, their hearts rebelled against God, and it started just with a little unbelief. What we're going to see is this group of people who were in the rebellion, who were rebelling against God, simply did not believe that God would give them a drink of water when they were thirsty. Didn't say they denied that God was good. Didn't say they were worshiping idols. It didn't say that they denied that God was Savior or that they cursed Him. They simply were thirsty and did not believe that God would give them a drink of water. And God said, you're in rebellion. Now, to understand this passage, we've got to go back and look at Psalm 95, where the author of Hebrews is quoting from. And in verse 8 of Psalm 95, the psalmist says, Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. Where is Meribah and Massah? Well, the word Meribah in the Hebrew means quarreling, arguing. 
And the word masa means testing. He says, don't harden your hearts like you did at quarreling and testing. This, this place that we call quarreling and testing. Some, you know, so many believers in Jesus Christ live in the place of quarreling and testing. Quarrel, unbelief takes you to the place of quarreling and testing. And he says, you quarreled with the Lord and you tested the Lord. You quarreled with the Lord. Do you know that it's possible to argue with God? And that's what unbelief does. Unbelief is an argument with God. It is a fight with God. Unbelief says, God, you don't know what you're talking about. You got it all wrong. You messed up. Unbelief attacks God, gets in his face and tries to slap him. Unbelief spits on his promises and says they're good for nothing. Unbelief calls him a liar. He says, don't harden your hearts like you did when you went to this place called quarreling and testing. And testing the Lord is putting him to the test. Well, I'm going to throw myself down. Let's see if the Lord catches me. I'm going to spend all my money. Let's see if the Lord bails me out. I'm not going to work a job. Let's see if the Lord provides for me. Testing, putting the Lord to the test. Remember, Satan took Jesus up to the top of the temple and said, throw yourself down and even had scripture for it is written. He will give his angels charge over you to keep you in all of your ways. They will bear you up in their hands, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Do you know that the, that the devil knows the Bible better than you do? That when he comes to deceive you, he always brings scriptural support. He even tried to quote scripture to the one who wrote it. And Jesus said, it is written, thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test. He said, I'm not going to throw myself off this temple to see if God is with me. I don't have to test him to see if he's with me. I know my God is with me. So where was this place of quarreling and testing where a lot of believers in Jesus Christ live their lives? You know, we have this practice called journaling. We write in our journal and we just share our deep thoughts with the Lord. And I've heard a lot of people say, just be honest with God. And if if you're mad at God, tell him you're mad at him. If you're hurt by God, tell him you're hurt by him. If you think he left you, tell him you think he left you. Just And really what we're saying is open up your journal and write out all of the unbelieving, sinful thoughts that turn away from the living God that you possibly can. And let's call it a spiritual exercise. <laughs> hmm? Go into your prayer closet and complain to God for an hour. It's an abomination. It doesn't do anything for you and it doesn't do anything for God. All you're doing is quarreling with God and testing him instead of believing now, let's, let's take this a step forward. Where was Masa and Meribah? In order to understand Masa and Meribah, you've got to go to Exodus chapter 17. This is after the Exodus event. I mean, God brought them out of Egypt. You've got to understand, these people had no reasonable expectation of deliverance. They had been in Egypt in slavery for 300 years. You know, I hear people say, you know, I have been struggling with this since I was a little boy. And I'm 25 now. I've been struggling with it since I was five. That's 20 years. I don't see how this can ever break off my life. The Israelites were in slavery for 300 years. 300. Now, when, you, when you've been struggling with something for 20 years, you feel like you're stuck. When you've been struggling with something for 300 years, that is for 60 generations, okay? I mean, it's not just me, but my daddy struggled with it. And back 60 generations, we have been battling this power of slavery, 
you have absolutely no expectation that there's anything different that's going to come into your life. But in the midst of that place of hopelessness, God comes and raises up a deliverer named Moses, stands him before Pharaoh and commands him to say, let my people go that they may worship me, sends the 10 plagues on Egypt and leads them out of Egypt as a cloud by day and a fire by night. Literally, the presence of God was manifested in the air visibly over. I mean, I mean, come on. God is visibly present, leading them as a cloud and a fire, brought them to the Red Sea, parted the waters, caused them to pass by on dry ground, drowned Pharaoh's army. And when they got to the other side, they had a Holy Ghost party and they shouted among the gods who is like you. Fearful in praises, mighty in power. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. They had a Holy Ghost party over there, and they're worshiping the Lord. And then they get ten feet out into the desert, and they get thirsty, and they start saying, God's not with us anymore. Look at this, Exodus 17. They, verse, the end of verse 1, they camped at Refidim, but there was no water for the people to drink, so they quarreled with Moses. There's that word Meribah. They quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. You're the leader. This is your fault. Here's what we do. Let's blame the man in charge. Let's put it on the pastor. Moses, you let us here. Give us some water to drink. Do you know what infantile believers in Jesus Christ do? They put the blame on somebody else. When they come to a crisis in their lives, they have two choices. One, trust God. Two, blame somebody else. And they take option two. Moses, we don't have water and it's your fault. Get us some water. I love believers like that. You know, folks that will come to you. See, wait till you become a pastor. You know what I'm talking about. Folks will put you on a 40-day fast and go to a pizza party. I'm glad you're praying through for me, pastor. I had a, I had a brother come to me one time and say, Pastor, find me a wife. I need you to find me a wife. And I, th- I said, I don't see that in the Bible anywhere. The Bible says when a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing. Not when a man's pastor finds him a wife, it's a good thing. I mean, if you can't find anybody who wants you, I don't think I can. Don't put that on me. (laughs) They come to Moses and say, give us some water. None of them noticed that Moses didn't have any water either. See, you know, you ever been to one of those churches? You know, I, I resisted early on. I had some folks that wanted to put a a little table next to the pulpit in our church years ago, like seven, eight years ago. They wanted to put a little table and they wanted to they wanted to buy these ornate goblets and put like glasses of ice water and orange juice and seven up there for me while I'm preaching. You know, sounded really nice. I said, no way. I don't want any of that. You know why? Because I've been to too many of them churches where the pastor is up there sipping apple juice and orange juice and mint juleps and iced tea. And everybody out there is all thirsty. You know what I'm, t- I mean, I remember so many times just sitting there in church and the pastor's just sipping this glass, big old goblet of ice water, <laughs> you know, and I'm, yeah, everybody's out there just all thirsty. Uh, I couldn't even hear the sermon. I'm just too busy lusting after that glass of water. It's too hot up in this church. You know, when the, the fans, you know, the churches where you, they just hand you a fan when you walk in cause they don't have any AC and you're just fanning just, and the pastor's just sipping, ah, you know? And so, <laughs> 
Well, Moses wasn't one of those pastors. Moses didn't have any water either. Listen to what Moses says to God. Moses was in the same boat they were. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't have the power to part a Red Sea. God led them out. Not Moses, but they're blaming Moses. Right? So Moses, he goes to God and he could have been, he could have had the same attitude they had. Yeah, God, what's up with that? Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? You hear that? They say, give us water now. We're thirsty. And Moses says, why are you testing God? Now, how is that testing God? It's testing God because you're demanding something from him as proof of his presence and love. Lord, if you love me, do this. Lord, if you're with me, do this. Lord, if you called me, do this. Lord, if you've saved me, do this. Whenever you're demanding something from God as proof of his presence and love, you are putting him to the test. And Moses says, stop testing God. Stop putting him to the test. Isn't it interesting that believers in Jesus Christ have no power of extrapolation? What is one plus two? Come on, this is not a trick question. Three, right? What is two plus three? What is three plus four? What is four plus five? What's the next question I'm going to ask you? What's the next question I'm going to ask you? Five plus six. What is five plus six? How did you know that? Because it was in consecutive. It's called extrapolation. You saw the pattern. I gave you four pieces to the puzzle, right? I gave you a four-part pattern. The next part was obvious. One plus two, two plus three, three plus four, four plus five. What's next? And then what's next? It's, you could do that all day. It's called extrapolation. If I said do that for an hour, you could do it for an hour. You could do it indefinitely. Why? Because you could look back at what I did and look forward at what I'm going to do. Why is it that believers have no power of godly extrapolation? You can't look back on what he did and figure out what he's going to do. You can't look back. And, now listen. Now, now, okay. I believe that God is pretty smart. I believe that actually I believe that the wisest man on planet earth is a bumbling idiot in God's presence. Because the Bible says that the wisdom of, ma- of man is foolishness to God. Right? It's just foolishness to him. But at least God has common sense. Now, it don't make no sense to preserve Moses' life when, when Pharaoh was trying to kill every infant in his generation. Raise him up. Send him to the, to the wilderness. Meet him in the burning bush. Send him to Pharaoh. Send the ten plagues. Bring Israel out, lead them through the Red Sea, drown Pharaoh's army, and let them die of thirst in the wilderness. Moses says, why are you testing the Lord? Does it make any sense that he's going to let you die of thirst after he did so much to save you? Does it make any sense? I mean, what kind of a God do you think he is? 
Moses is praying, Lord, what am I supposed to do with these people? And, and the people, you know what they did? They started an impeach Moses campaign. They had folks walking around taking signatures. If we get 30,000 signatures, we're going to stone Moses. They started an impeach. Look at this. Are, are you seeing this? Look at, look at verse 4. First of all, verse 3. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? See the conclusion? They said, one plus two. Two plus three. Three plus four. Four plus five. And God said, what's next? And they said, oh, zero minus one. Look at verse four. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I supposed to do with these people? <laughs> he was six months, three months into his ministry and he was already ready to quit the ministry. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with these people? He says, they're almost ready to stone me. You see what Moses is saying? Notice he's saying, God, notice he's not saying, God, how come you didn't give us water? You know what he's saying? God, why do they think you're not going to provide us with water? Why do they think it's even a possibility that you're going to let us die of thirst? What? I mean, why would they think it's possible for you to send your son born of a virgin, suffering under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead and buried, arise again on the third day, ascend into heaven and sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, send the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and build the church and say, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But you think the AT&T bill is going to prevail against it. God, what am I supposed to do with these people? And so, so God says, look at this, verse 5. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses goes, okay, people, I've heard from God. Come with me. We're going to water. Come on, let's go. Come on, let's go. And the people start following. And he comes up to this rock. Water is right here in this rock. And the people started picking up stones. Give me my staff, my stick. Crack and water gushes out of the rock. Moses had the audacity to believe that God would bring water out of a rock before letting his people die of thirst. Moses just believed God is going to turn the sand into a bubbling pool if that's what he has to do to keep his people alive. There's absolutely no way he's letting me go down. There's absolutely no way he's going to leave me here at this place. Listen, you need to begin to get that confession in your mouth. I don't care what kind of situation you're in. I don't care what kind of trial you're facing. I don't care what kind of mountain is standing in your way. You need to face it and say, I know it looks impossible. I don't see a way out of it. There's no hope in the natural, but there's absolutely no way God is going to leave me here in this place. No way. No way. No way. 
No, even if it's a mountain that you created by your foolishness. Even if your wounds are self-inflicted, you need to begin to declare, God, I know that I did this to myself. But you're in the business of redeeming folks who mess themselves up. No way. And so the author of Hebrews says, today, if you would hear his voice, don't harden your heart as they did in the rebellion. Isn't it interesting that they quarreled with God and put him to the test? And the Bible calls it rebellion. And isn't it interesting that in another place, the Bible tells us that rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. And if unbelief is rebellion and rebellion is witchcraft, that means unbelief is witchcraft. Now do you understand why he says, see to it that none of you has a wicked heart of unbelief that turns from the living God. See to it. It's too dangerous. You can't allow even a little bit of unbelief, unbelief to germinate in your heart. It's too dangerous. That stuff will kill you. That stuff will kill an entire generation. That stuff will cause an entire generation to die in the desert when God wants to bring them into the promised land. That stuff will kill you. It will keep you in a dry place when God wants to take you to a pool of water. It will keep you in an isolated place when God wants to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. Do not fool with that unbelief stuff. you got to get it out of you. Is it in you? If it's in you, you got to get it out of you. You got to get it out of you. And so he says the alternative. What's the alternative? In chapter four, he tells us what the alternative is. Chapter four, verse one, he says, if I can get my iPad to go there. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. The alternative to an unbelieving heart is a heart that enters into God's rest. Rest is the opposite of unbelief. The result of faith is rest. You know, I'm leaving for Indonesia tonight, and I got a lot on my plate right now. And I've got a lot that I need to accomplish even before I get on the plane tonight. Matter of fact, I have a to-do list that's longer than my left leg. Just of stuff that I need to do before I leave. And I have a to-do list for the plane, and I have a to-do list for my layovers, And in every city in between ministry, I've got a to-do list. I got stuff I got to accomplish while I'm in Indonesia. And when I get home, I got, I got to hit the ground running. I got, I got a lot to do. I got people to see. I got miles to go before I I sleep and I got promises to keep. And, and you know, I've got, I got a lot on my plate. And, and for the last several weeks, I've been crying out to God in my heart, God, give me the grace to accomplish all this stuff. Give me the strength and the ingenuity and the wisdom and the knowledge and the power. Would you help me? I can't do it by my own power. Give me the strategy. Give me the time. I, I, I'll give me the anointing of Joshua to command the sun to be still in the sky. So I have more hours in the day. Uh, transport me from one place to another like Stephen or, or like Philip, the evangelist. I mean, do, do what you need to do, but help me. And I've been crying that out in my heart. And yesterday the Lord spoke to me so clearly. He said, son, here's your strategy. Listen, I'm going to give this to you. This is for free. The Lord said, finish your work before you begin it. Here's your strategy. Complete every task before you begin it. 
Practice the discipline each day of finishing your work before you start it. I said, Lord, help me understand that because you're speaking in parables. But I need you to speak plainly to me. And he took me here to Hebrews chapter 4. Look at what it says. The end of verse 3 says, His work has been finished since the creation of the world. His work has been finished since the creation of the world. Isn't it interesting that he's still working, but yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world? He's still working, but his work has been finished since the creation of the world. Meaning he's working on a completed work. Follow me. Look at verse 4. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. The implication of this whole chapter is that when God started resting on the seventh day, he never came out of that rest. Notice that there's no place that says, and he started working again on the eighth day. When we think of the seventh day, we think of it as one day. That in all eternity, God only took one day off. But he watching over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. He's been working around the clock. And we even say it. I thank God that he neither slumbers nor sleeps. He works around the clock. He must be the most stressed out God. He's got to work 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. 24, 7, 365. But that's not what Hebrews says. It says his work has been complete since the creation of the world. That is, when he went into his sabbatical on the seventh day, he's simply been working out of that completion from that moment forward. His work is complete, yet he's still working it out. And this is what the Spirit of the Lord said to me. He said, every morning, go into your prayer closet and bring whatever you have to accomplish in the day to me and pray until in the Spirit it's complete. When your heart begins to speak with Jesus and say, it is done. Remember in John's gospel, the last thing Jesus said on the cross before he gave up the ghost was, it is finished. And when he said it is finished, he meant everything that needed to be paid for your salvation is finished. And everything that needed to be accomplished for your healing and restoration, it is finished. And everything necessary for your deliverance and freedom, it is finished. And every provision that you need, it is finished. And everything that you need for life and godliness, it is finished. There's no more price to be paid. There's no more labor to be done. It is is finished. And God said to me, until your heart and mind come into alignment with my completed work, don't you dare start your work. Until your heart begins to say, it is finished. When your heart says it is finished, now your hands can begin. Don't let your hands begin working until your heart finishes. And the thing is, we think prayer accomplishes things. Can I tell you that prayer does not accomplish things? Prayer brings your heart and mind into alignment with what God has already accomplished. Come on, get it. Get it. God spoke to me yesterday and said, Son, I've got many more things to do in your life, but I can't do them until you enter fully into the things that I've already done. You're asking me to do new things, but you're still entering into the old things I've done. Until you enter fully into the old things, don't ask me for new things yet. My mama would have said, eat what's on your plate. 
Mom, give me some more. Yeah, you still got food on your plate. Don't ask for more till you eat what's on your plate. We got plates full of blessings and we're going, Lord, send me more food. Send me more money. Send me more acceptance. Send me more opportunities. And God's saying, you got a plate full of blessings that you haven't eaten yet. Open your mouth and begin to partake of the goodness of God that is already sitting right in front of you. And so he says here, and isn't this interesting? He says here in verse 11, well, first of all, in verse 10, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work. If you enter into God's rest, you rest from your own work. It doesn't mean that you don't work anymore, but it means you're resting from your work. Remember, Jesus said, come to me, you who are heavy laden, you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I'm meek and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light entering into God's Sabbath rest does not mean that you move to a hermitage entering into God's Sabbath rest does not mean that you become shiftless Lazy and slothful. Entering into God's Sabbath rest simply means that you live from the end and not from the beginning. That you come into the place of completion and you begin with a completed work in mind and not an incomplete work. When you're not living in God's Sabbath rest, everything seems tentative. When, you, when you're not living from God's Sabbath rest, there's a question mark behind everything you do. Yeah. Will it work? Will it succeed? Will I be okay? Am I going to make it? Am I going to have enough? Am I going to have enough energy? Am I going to have enough time? Is this going to be accepted? Is this going to be enough? Maybe I'm going to fail. Maybe I'm going to fall on my face. Maybe everything's going to fall apart. You're living with a question mark after everything you do. Everything is a maybe. Everything is tentative. But when you step into God's completed work, when you step into his Sabbath rest and work from there, you understand that Jesus paid the price for your salvation 2,000 years before you were ever born. It was completed. He said it is finished. And when he said it is finished, he sat down at the right hand of God. And I don't know about you, but whenever I'm done with anything, I sit down. Matter of fact, as soon as I'm done with this sermon, I'm going to go somewhere and sit down. I'm tired. I've been up since 4 a.m. this morning. I'm going to go somewhere and sit down. I'm going to disappear. I'll probably be in my office somewhere. Don't look for me. I'm sitting down. When I'm sitting down, don't bother me. I'm tired, but it's because I'm done. I'm finished. I'm not going to sit down while I'm still preaching. I got more to do. But when I'm done, when Jesus said it is finished, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. And you know what? He doesn't get up because you're in trouble. He doesn't even stand up. Go back to Psalm 110.1. Then the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Just sit right here and relax. I'm going to make all your enemies your footstool. You need to learn to live out of Psalm 110.1. God says, I just want you to come sit right here. All of those enemies that are chasing you down, that are trying to discourage you, trying to destroy you, I'm going to make them all your footstool. But you just sit. The problem is we stand up and try to help God out. And God says, boy, sit down. Sit yourself down for you hurt yourself. I don't need your help. I need your rest. 
I need you to sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the only time we see Jesus standing up at the right hand of God is when the faithful martyr Stephen was being stoned to death. And when Stephen was, was about to breathe his last and go home to be with the Lord, he said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He stood up to say, come on home, son. Come on home, Stephen. That, he, didn't, he doesn't stand up because your rent is due and the light bill too and money is funny and change is strange. He doesn't get up for that foolishness because he sees the other side of it. He doesn't even get up because you've been unemployed for a few years. You know, isn't it funny? The Lord allows us to walk through those situations so that he can prove to us that even when we got nothing, we got something because we got all we need in him. I tell you what, ever since we went into this recession, I've seen more testimonies, testimonies that'll blow you away. Pray for me, pastor. I'm unemployed. And, and, you, and a year later, I'm still unemployed. But how are you making it? I don't know, but we're making it. How are you paying a rent? I don't know, but we're paying it. How are you eating? I don't know, but we're eating. How are you paying your bills? I don't know, but we're paying them. You know why? Because you have the Lord, your God, and his promises are sustaining you. And he'll bring water out of a rock before he lets you die of thirst. He'll rain down manna from heaven before he lets you starve. Come on, somebody. Are you with me? You're saying amen. Good. I'm going to have to get you out of here quick. I got to keep my promise. And so God wants us to enter into his Sabbath rest he wants us to learn how to live from the end. You know, I was praying even about my eating habits. And I've been praying that prayer for years. Help me, Lord. But what I was praying for so long was for a diet plan that works. How many know that a diet plan does nothing for you if you ain't got no discipline? So when I realized that, I started praying for discipline. And see, when I, when I, when I look for a diet plan that works, what I'm looking for is a plan that will allow me to eat most of what I like and still not gain any weight. And I've tried all of them. My favorite was Atkins. You know where you eat five chickens and four, 16 fried eggs and two plates of bacon and you still lose a pound a day? It works. Yeah, it worked. I lost a lot of weight on it. But then your teeth feel like they're going to fall out and your hair <laughs> starts losing hair. It doesn't sound very healthy, does it? Just eat five steaks and two chickens and five dozen eggs and you'll lose weight. And bacon, you know, and drink bacon grease. You know, just, it doesn't sound good. The Lord came to me yesterday and he said, son, before you eat, make sure you're satisfied. Don't eat until you're full. Don't eat until you're full. Before you sit down at the table to eat, close your eyes and come to a place of fullness and satisfaction in me. You know, I was fasting last week. My, my spiritual father called me on Wednesday and he said, how you doing, Benjamin? I said, I'm doing pretty good. And he said, what, what's going on these days? I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm contending for some things in the spirit and I'm fasting this week. And he said, yeah, you know, the problem with you fasting is that you don't even know what it is. He said, you, you don't even understand fasting. That's the problem because you think fasting's a hard thing. He says, I see you when you're fasting and you're walking around all hunched over. You're struggling and your body's hurting. 
He said, Benjamin, I'm fasting right now too, but I'm just as well nourished as if I were eating three meals a day. He said, you know why? Because I've learned how to eat the truth. He said, Benjamin, have you ever tasted the truth? I don't think you have. (laughs) Can you tell me what it tastes like? I don't think you can. Do you realize that when you begin to eat the truth, it won't only nourish your spirit and your soul, but it'll nourish your physical body. That when you begin to taste of the deep things of God, it'll bring sustenance even to your bones and to your marrow. He said, Benjamin, it feels like I've been eating three meals a day because I'm feeding on the truth of God each and every day. He said, you know what God brought me this morning? That this morning he came to me with a gift of hospitality. I didn't even understand what it was until this morning. I thought it was a useless gift, but he brought it to me and said, my son, eat this. He said, and I began to taste of it. And he said, oh, Benjamin, I've discovered that it's one of the most wonderful things in the world. We've completely overlooked that gift, but I'm sustained because I've been feeding on the abundance of his household. He said, Benjamin, you've been enduring a fast of lament and mourning, but God is now taking you into a fast of joy and gladness. He's saying that your fasting is now a feast. He wants you to feast on the deep things of God. Benjamin, you got to get some of this. I said, man, I thought I knew what fasting was. (laughs) I've been doing it since 1994. He said, you don't even know what it is. I was even a little offended for a second, but I shifted. (laughs) I said, hey, no, I shift. I receive. And the more he talked, I realized he's right. I don't know what it is. He told me one time, he said, last time I fasted, I didn't even realize I was fasting. My wife came to me and said, Robert, will you please eat? I said, I'm not hungry. She said, yes, but you haven't eaten in seven days. I said, really? (laughs) She said, I know I've cooked every meal and you haven't been at the table for seven days. He said, I was receiving so much from the Lord. I didn't even miss food because I was feasting on the deep things of God. God said to me yesterday, he said, before you eat, make sure you're satisfied. Because if God doesn't satisfy you, food won't. If God doesn't satisfy you, a woman won't. If God doesn't satisfy you, a man won't. If God doesn't satisfy you, money won't. A new house won't. A new car won't. Everything that your heart is crying out for is foolishness. Apart from the presence and power of God. You know what's funny? You think about it. If you bought a Bentley right now, somebody bought you a brand new top of the line Bentley. That'd be awesome, huh? For a few months. For a few months. You know what? You know what? For a few months, and then it just becomes a car. Just a car. I mean, at first you'd be like, yeah, this is my car right here. This is my car. Whoop, whoop. You know what I'm talking about? You'd be riding around with your windows down looking out. Hey, what's up? Holla, holla. A year later, two years later, your friends would be like, is that your car? Is that your car? Yeah, yeah, it's my car. Just a car. Doesn't even have that new car smell anymore. But you know what? In the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Not temporary pleasures, eternal pleasures. Forevermore. 
Learning to find fullness in God. Learning to find your satisfaction in Christ and not in things. I don't care what you're longing for. When you get it, you got it and it's over. But when you get him, you got him forever. It's never over. Nothing you desire compares to him. I'm going to end with this. Now, uh, Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to take you there just for a moment and then we're going to close. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 and following, the author of Hebrews says, Every priest stands ministering day after day the same sacrifices year after year that can never take away sins. He's talking about the Old Testament priesthood. He said, these priests never get to sit down. He says, every priest stands ministering. They're standing up. The priests of Israel, there were no seats in the tabernacle of Moses. There were no seats in the temple. No place for the priests to sit. Why? Because when those priests came into the house of the Lord, it was time to work, not rest. Year after year, the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. In the next verse, he said, but this one high priest, speaking of Jesus, he offered one sacrifice and sat down. One, one sacrifice and said, I'm done. And went and sat down at God's right hand. Why? Verse 14, for he had perfected forever those who are being sanctified. For by one sacrifice, he perfected forever. Now, when something is perfected, it's complete, right? It's done. No process there, right? Is there any process? No, nope. Perfected forever. Done. Those who are being sanctified. Wait a minute. When you're being sanctified, it means you're not sanctified yet, right? I mean, you're in process. Wait a minute. I thought he perfected you forever. Why are you being sanctified? And here are the two sides of the debate. There's some believers who love to live on the perfected forever side. I've been perfected forever. I've got no sin and no problems in my life and everything's great. It's just face confession and I'm just confessing. I'm not sick and I'm not, I'm just confessing. Everything is, it's all done in Christ. Just living over here in the completed work side. He perfected me forever. And then those, there's others over here who are on the being sanctified. No, 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 no. I'm being sanctified for the rest of my life. For the rest of my life, I've got sin in my life and there's all this sin in my life. And oh, and every day he's taking out another sin and taking out another sin. And I just live a sin conscious life every day. Lord, take away another sin. Take away another sin. And I've got a lifetime of sin ahead of me. And those who live only on this side live in pride and arrogance. And those who live on this side live in inferiority and anxiety. But it says both. He perfected you forever, but you're still being sanctified. Both. I asked God for revelation on this, and he gave me this picture yesterday. A puzzle. If you look at a puzzle, the painting is complete, but it's in in pieces. The painting is complete, but it's in pieces. It's a process of putting the pieces together. But when all the pieces come together, you notice the painting is complete. So that when the pieces come together, they simply reveal the completed painting. That was already there. Even when the pieces were broken up, the painting was complete. The painting had been perfected forever, but the pieces are still being sanctified. Now, my daughter... Has uh, my daughter has this one puzzle? It's got four pieces. She's three years old, you know, and you know she, you know, she takes it and throws it down. And it takes her about thirty minutes to 
put it together. You know, she's... <laughs> you know, and, and then finally she said, I can't do it. And I go, okay, I, I'll help her, you know. And sometimes she does it herself. A lot of times she does it herself. Now, yay! And I go, great, yay! It took forever, but congratulations! And then she pours it out again and does it again. You know, she has to do it again. But have you ever done a big puzzle like 3,000 pieces? Now, if you do one of those big puzzles, like 3,000 pieces, first of all, the, the more complex the puzzle, the more pieces, the more beautiful the picture. I mean, you're not going to put a 3,000-piece puzzle together and see Barney. <laughs> Man, you'd feel so gypped, wouldn't you? Like, the devil is a liar. <laughs> And get my money back. This took me a year. It's going to be some beautiful picture. And and here's the key. You know, if you and I got 3,000 piece puzzles, you might put yours together quicker than mine. It might only take you a month, but it might take me a year. But am I worried? No. You know why? Because you got all the pieces for yours. And I got all the pieces for mine. There's no anxiety about it. No tentativity about it. It's not a maybe. I got all the pieces. The painting is complete. It's done. It's been perfected forever. And I got all the pieces. There's nothing missing. His divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Meaning his divine power gave you all the pieces. And the painting is complete. But here's the key. You see, the way they make a puzzle is they get an artist to draw the painting. And then they cut it up. God does it the opposite way around. You bring the shards of your cut up life to him. And he takes each individual piece and paints a little bit on it. You've never seen the picture. All you see is the pieces. And that's why it's so easy for you to focus on the being sanctified. Oh, my life is just a collection of broken pieces and nothing fits together. No. He painted on each little piece. And when you put them together, you see what a master artist he is. How was he able to paint a masterpiece with little broken pieces? He knew how each one fit together with the next. He knew it in advance and he painted a masterpiece. And here's the key. When you're doing a big puzzle, you get a little corner done first. You know, first is just a corner. And when you get that corner, you see just the corner of this beautiful picture. And you start to rejoice in it. I mean, you start to rejoice with each piece that comes together. It's like a piece of the end product. You go, wow, that's beautiful. I can't wait to see more. And you get another piece and another piece and another piece. And that corner starts to get bigger. Maybe you start working on another corner over here. Maybe you start working on another. Maybe you find a little line that goes through the middle. You know, you got a corner, a corner, and a little line that goes through the middle to connect the two. And all of a sudden, these two big pieces are put together. You start rejoicing. It's an exhilarating process. Why? Because you know that you will surely finish. You know that you will surely finish. And you don't worry. And here's the key. You know, as the, pu- as the, the puzzle starts getting bigger and bigger, the picture starts getting bigger and bigger, you start guessing, what is it? Is that a bird? But then you get another, pic- another piece. No, that's not a bird. That's a, uh, uh, an ostrich or a goat, you know? I mean, it looks like something when it's small, but when it starts getting bigger, that's why you never worry if your job doesn't work out. 
You get another piece to the puzzle and it's something bigger than that job. You don't worry when things seem to fall apart. You haven't seen the whole puzzle yet. When he puts another piece, you'll see that you're bigger than the thing that you lost. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined To be conformed to the image of his son. Translation. To be conformed to the puzzle of his son. When the picture is done, you're going to look and see the image of Jesus Christ. That is, when he painted on each of those little pieces of your life, he painted an image of himself. Enter into his rest today. Enter into his rest today. Enter into his completed work. I know it feels like everything has fallen apart in your life for some of you today. I know it feels like you've fallen in a ditch so far down that nobody can pull you out. I know you feel like maybe you've messed up things so bad or maybe things have been messed up for you. Some of you here, you got messed up by somebody else when you were too young to know any better. And you feel like, man, if I had not gone through this in my life, the picture would be more beautiful. Let me tell you something. I'm here to tell you today that the power of God is greater than what happened to you. And the power of God is greater than what you have done. The power of God is here to restore the broken pieces in your life. You say, my wounds are self-inflicted. He's in the business of restoring those who have inflicted their own wounds. He's in the business of putting back together again things that look impossible. And I'm here to tell you today that if you would enter into his rest... And he's inviting you into a Sabbath rest today. You've lived with so much anxiety and fear, but he's calling you into a Sabbath rest today. You've lived with a state of incompleteness. You've lived with a sense of tentativity. You've lived with a big question mark on the other side of, your, of, of everything that you've done. But today, he wants to remove that question mark and put a period. It is finished. It's done. It's done. Everything that you even know to ask him for is part of the it is finished. It's already been done. Yeah, there's still pieces to be put together. But the painting's already done. And so you can rest. Enter into that Sabbath rest. Just bow your heads right now. Enter into that Sabbath rest right now. Come to that place where you begin to declare, God, I thank you that it is finished. That everything that concerns me, Psalm 138, 8, the Lord will perfect that which concerns you. The Lord will perfect. God wants you to know today that he has perfected that which concerns you. It's already been perfected. His work has been finished since the creation of the world. On the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. This can become the seventh day for you. This can become the seventh. I don't care. You might look back and say, I've been struggling with this thing for 138 days. I've been struggling with this thing for a thousand days. This thing goes back 20 generations. It can become the seventh day for you by faith. If you make a decision, I'm going to enter into his rest. I'm going to stop striving and trying. And I'm going to begin believing. 
I'm not going to have a wicked heart of unbelief that turns away from the living God. But I am going to believe my God will perfect that which concerns me. The Bible says to cast all of your cares and sorrows on him because he cares for you. Paul said, do not be anxious about anything, but in all things through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. I say to you today that there is rest for the weary soul. Your soul is so weary. Your soul is so weary. You've been carrying so much. But you don't realize that you've been carrying it in your own strength and in your own power. You don't realize that you've been leaning on your own understanding. And let me tell you how to know if you've been leaning on your own understanding. If you're burdened by the fact that you don't understand, you're leaning on your own understanding. See, there's many things that I don't understand, but I I come to a place where I say, God, I don't understand it, but I'm not worried about it because I don't lean on my own understanding. I thank you that you understand it. I thank you that you understand it. I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. Trust in the Lord. Be of good cheer. And he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Hallelujah. He will keep him at perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. Set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your heart on things above, not on earthly things. He will perfect that which concerns you. He knows what you have need of before you ask. Yes, you're going to work, but you're going to work from the place of completion, not from the... You're going to start from the end, not from the beginning. Make sure your heart is saying it is finished before your hands begin to labor. Make sure your heart is at rest. At rest. It is finished. Know that you can't fail. Know that you can't fail. Know that God isn't going to leave you in the wilderness. He's not going to leave you out there. There is no way that he's going to leave you out there to die of thirst. It is impossible. It is impossible. It's finished. Enter into that Sabbath rest right now and live there. Hallelujah. Father, I speak your blessing over this house right now. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I bless you. I bless you for your sons and daughters here today. I bless you. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. Somebody's here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've been leaning on your own understanding. The only person you trust is yourself. The only person you depend on is yourself. You know, that's a hard way to live. Can I tell you that Jesus is here for you today? You know what? You don't even have to raise your hand. You can open your heart and say, Jesus, come in. You can open your heart and say, Jesus, come in. I receive you. And I'm inviting you right now to pray this prayer with me. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you're ready to open your heart and invite him in. Say, Jesus, come into my heart. I invite you. I implore you. I ask you. Come into my heart. Come set me free. Come forgive me of my sins. 
Wash me. Cleanse me. Make me a child of God. Renew me in my mind. And take me into your rest. Teach me to walk with you. Give me a hunger for your word. I need you. I thank you. In your name. Amen. You know, if you prayed that prayer this morning, I want you to come talk to me. I'm going to stand right here at this altar. I want you to come. Just come. I just want to shake your hand and know that you prayed that prayer and that you invited Jesus into your heart. It's a powerful moment. Secondly, if you're a first-time visitor here today, I want you to come shake my hand if you have a moment. Thirdly, I want to encourage each and every one of you. God loves you. He knows you. He's inscribed you on the palm of his hand. And you're the apple of his eye. So I want you to sleep in peace every night, wake up in joy every morning, and walk in love every day. Stand on your feet. Lift up your hands. Father, I speak your blessing over these sons and daughters of yours. I speak strength, peace, and encouragement to each and every one in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. It is finished. We are done.